Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. God, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for these men and women who are journeying together in the book of Judges. And Lord, we get we get another character tonight, Lord, that is just right in front of us. And the book of Judges is so great for all these characters. And, and some of them are really good examples, and some of them are not so good examples. And in the case of Gideon, he seems to be a little of both. And, and it's just when we see that, you know, it's the reason why movies and TV shows have so much, you know, power, because it's all there in front of us on the screen. And, and a good book can really draw a character out. You can see everything. And God, your word does the same thing. You, you paint the characters in your, in your Bible, warts and all. And it's just, everything is right there. And so we thank you for tonight and for our time together as we study Gideon and how you, how you led Israel during this weird time. And I just pray, Lord, we'd be challenged and encouraged. We'd ask some good questions and we would be able to find our answers and our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as always, I'm going to make sure we got Randy coming in here. All right. Great. Welcome, Randy. As always, um, we have the judges cycle, top of the page. Israel's apostasy, followed by Yahweh or God's anger, followed by Yahweh's compassion. And in the compassion, so in the anger part, it's like Israel goes astray and then they're punished. That's the, the anger part. And the, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Philistines, whoever they are, boom. And then they cry out to God. And God, in his compassion, raises up a judge. And that's the theme of the book of Judges. A judge is raised up, and that's every single character that comes along. And then that judge lives, and a judge will die. And then Israel goes right back to their ways again. And they apostatize all over again. And if that judge's cycle speaks to you, good. Because uh, Isaiah said it best, we all like sheep have gone astray. And each of us chose in our own way kind of thing. So it's like, we, we do this too. And we will have moments where we'll go to a camp or something and we'll rah, 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 go Jesus, go. We'll have a really great worship service or a revival or something like that. And we're ready to go. Then we go back to our life again. And like, oh, yeah, well, Sunday church is great. But then Monday hits us. Like, well, what am I going to do? So we have our own cycles we go through. And I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just, it's, it's an honest thing. And I know my life is a testament of that as well. And uh, yeah, so you got two battles tonight and two Gideons. And you, I, I tend to think you're going to be happier with the first Gideon. The first Gideon is going to make you smile a bit. And the second Gideon is going to make you gnash your teeth a bit. The second Gideon's a jerk. Okay, and that's, that's being very nice. Okay, we're, we're going to get to the second Gideon. And the second Gideon is so bad that if I can be bold... I don't know we're going to see him in heaven. I'm glad that's not my call. He is Solomon bad. Like at Solomon's worst. He's that bad. And so I, I'm just saying, I, the, the Gideon is going to end really, really poorly tonight. And so... We, uh, we're, we're in the book of Judges, chapter 7. Well, welcome, Alan. Good to see you. We're in, the, we're in the book of Judges here, chapter 7 and 8. And we have on the screen here, 
um, our, our worksheet tonight. And let's just let's just start. And we're we got two battles and two Gideons. And remember, you got the Jordan River, and you've got he's going to have one battle on the east side of the Jordan, and the other battle on the west side of the Jordan. I'm kind of doing it for the camera here with west and east. And so you hear in the news, they talk about the west bank. What are they talking about? The west bank of the Jordan. So it's like the east side and the west side. Here we go. This is uh, we're going to be in chapter seven, nineteen to eight, three. But we'll start with nineteen to twenty-two. Victory. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning in the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. Remember how, how last week ended? Gideon kind of came along and, and he, he, he overheard this story. The Midianites were telling each other and, it, and they were saying, yeah, this Gideon is going to come and he's going he's, to mess us up. He's going to be like a barley loaf coming into the camp and blowing everything up. And Gideon's like, oh, wow, I'm going to hear it. That's great news. And so Gideon rallies everybody, uh, you know, get ready. Hey, here's your trumpet a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And here we go. And so Gideon and the 300 men, remember they were a big group of men. The Lord whittled down to 300 because God was going to get the glory, not Israel. Okay. So he whittled them down to this little fighting force. So Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard, they blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with swords. Wow. So the hand of God is immediately there. It's God is doing things. I mean, that right there is the worst case of friendly fire in military history where God's army goes out to battle and they make this great rah-rah noise and the enemy just, they just kill each other. It's like they just, the enemy defeated themselves at that point. That was the hand of God. And it's, it's, it's humorous. It's just, my goodness, and that happened. And again, this is all caused by God's hand. The text is clear. This the Lord caused these things, so God is clearly winning this battle. This is God's victory completely. There is no opportunity here for anybody, no confusion. These 300 little guys are not going to do anything big, but God is okay. And that was the point for what God was doing. So, leadership, so victory first, and that second, leadership. The army fled to Beth Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites. Seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them, as far as Beth Barah. He doesn't want them escaping. He's like, okay, fellow Israelites, step up. Here it is. They're running away. Block all the exits. Don't let them leave kind of thing. All right? That's just what they're saying here. So the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zib. How about that? They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb at the, wine, the winepress of Zeb. Interesting. We first met Gideon. Where was he hiding? In a winepress. Hmm. What's the first place that God asked Gideon to smash? The rock. 
that uh, Baal's idol was on. So it's like right away there's these themes coming back. It's like God reminding Gideon of his of his of, that, of his story, and then God's faithfulness in his story. That great mighty warrior that God called out to him in that wine press. Wow. Well, leadership. Gideon called out. I say, hey, pursue these guys. Oreb means raven, and Zeb or Zeb means wolf. There you go. Go get the raven and the wolf. Take them down. Block their exit. Be done with them. And uh, yeah, so Gideon shows diplomacy next. This is all good Gideon. This is, this is, this is very much a good Gideon here. Okay, we're going to get to bad Gideon. Okay, the coin's going to flip to the other side. This is good Gideon right here. So the, the west of the Jordan, we, we want Gideon to stay this Gideon. We want his story to end after this point. We don't want it to go on because we're rooting for this guy. And yeah, well, his diplomacy here. This is uh, eight, chapter eight. We're now in chapter eight, one to three. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? So that you can start to hear the sound of the smallest little dramatic violin beginning to play. You can hear the drama start to pick up. We're not getting division. We're getting drama within the Israelites. So how's Gideon going to handle this, okay? Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. How's Gideon going to take that? You know, because I don't think Gideon did anything wrong here. You know, we didn't read anything that said Gideon did something bad. It's just these guys are just, just causing a ruckus and just, just bringing up issues. And for just no reason except they're hurt. And their feelings are hurt and what have you. And, but he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grapes of Abiezer? God gave the wolf and the raven, the Midianite leaders into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? Oh, he's using that. Someone comes at him, something like Proverbs 15, a harsh word stirs back anger, but a gentle tongue. It's like he's giving a honey right back to them. They're coming in with, with like bile and acid. And he's responding with honey and being very diplomatic. At this, their resentment against him subsided. That's a good lesson for us. There's people in our life that just want to give it to us and want to just be angry for anger's sake. And we have an opportunity. We see this all the time on social media. I mean, my goodness. Um, I've, got, I've got people in my extended family that are just going after the political world right before this class. I'm just tempted like, oh, I want to say things. No. It's just... It's just, just Oh, just chill. I mean, it's like, we don't, I don't need to go there. I don't need to fight certain battles all the time. Daniel texts in, if you're not careful, you either die a hero or you will live long enough to see yourself become a villain. There you go. And uh, evidently, you know, Gideon helped save the day, I guess. And he lived just long enough to be, um, to have, have, have his own people come after him. So in blue text here, God's victory, God's glory. Remember Gideon, that reluctant Gideon, that Gideon who was afraid of his own shadow, and the Gideon who had to test God like two or three times just to see if God was really meaning what God meant to say. The Gideon that didn't really seem to trust God at all. The Gideon that just had to kind of like, you know, try to get God figured out by testing him and, and running God through. Yeah, not a good example of how to trust God. Not a good example of faith. Not a good example of all of obedience. And yet God used Gideon. 
God used him. God used him in a mighty way. Marvelous is the victory when it is solely God's. Gideon was just a military bum. He wasn't going to accomplish anything on his own. And then God took his forces and whittled them down to 300 little guys. God accomplished a great victory. A good leader at that point says, that's all God. Go, God, go, G-O-G-O. That is what is going on. God, the victory is the Lord's. I mean, David did that. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine to go against the armies of the Almighty God? And you know, Goliath answers back, well, what's this little dog with sticks coming out of it? And he, no, no, the, the, the army is, the victory is the Lord's. It's like David is right away. It's God's victory, God's victory, God's victory. See, that's the way it is. It's all about God's victory and God's glory. And that's how you need to look at your life. There are things in your life that you are going to accomplish, things that you're really working towards, things that you're very proud of, things that are good goals for you. But in an ultimate sense, as a person of faith, following as a disciple of Jesus, your life is not about your glory. You know, the, cult, the, the society today, the culture today, they do it for the gram, they say. And that's not grandma, that's Instagram. They do it so they can take their Instagram picture and they could see how many likes they get. And I know my generation, every, every good thing that I somehow do ends up on Facebook, okay? And one of those instances was uh, a number of years ago, I, I, I did my first 5K. And it was, I, I paid my, my fee, I got the race packet, I got the little placard thing, and I got the special t-shirt, and I signed up, and I got ready to run, and for me, running, you know, was, I, I, I wheezed like, uh, like an animal, and I, I, I finished, but, but yeah, it, I, I, and I had a dear friend of mine show up, and she was going to be my buddy, and she just kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll go with you, and, and she was a better runner than me, still is, and she's, she's a marathoner and a half marathoner. And so she was going very slowly with me and keeping me going. And, and so I didn't have to do my first K by myself. And this is a hard 5K. And I just, it was my first one. It was, you know, end of July. I mean, it was hot. Even though it was early morning, I'm this great lumbering beast and that kind of stuff. And I got to the point where towards the very end, I mean, I, I saw trees and I walked over to the trees and placed my hand on the trees. I wasn't praying or blessing the tree. I was stretching my back. I'm like, oh, I'm getting tired. Yes. It got so bad that my buddy had to text a friend of hers and ask the friend, would you please bring a big baby stroller? And then she got in the baby stroller and I pushed her on the, in the baby stroller as I was, because I could, I could rest my back as I was doing this 5K. It was horrible. But I was like, I'm not going to give up. I'm not yeah, going to give up. Hold at, on. at the very end of the 5K, this really cool moment happened where uh, another buddy of mine would happen to be one of the volunteers there. He left the side of the track, and he walked over. And as I crossed the line, I had my arm on one guy's shoulder and an arm on, my, on the girl's shoulder, and I was just going across the line. And what was really cool, I was the last one to finish, by the way, or so I thought, because my friend, my dear friend, who had done many 5Ks, she pushed me just a little bit ahead so that she crossed just behind me. So I didn't have to be the last one to finish. Why do I bring this up? At no point in time was that 5K victory something where I could go, I'm the man. 
look what I did. I'm a boss and I did that. Yeah, there's things I can hold my hat on. Last to finish is better than do not finish. You know, my, my, my gigantic, you know, finishing this 5K was amazing thing. And a lot of people were like, dang, look at that guy. Fine. It was a great victory, but it was not my victory. It was not something where I was able on my own just to go, wow, look what I did. No, no. My perspective was different. My perspective was I had people coming along at the right time. And I, I depended upon them as well. And see, that needed to be Gideon's perspective here, where it's like God's victory is clear. There's parts of your life that you celebrate. Keep that perspective. And I look back at that 5K with pride. I still have the shirt. You know, I look back with pride. It comes up every now and then on the Facebook, you know, annual thing, like, you know, memories. But I was thanking God all afternoon as I was like resting my legs or whatnot, I think I treated myself with some Chinese food or something. I, I, I was resting. I'm like, okay, God, thank you. That was huge. God, you gave me the strength to finish. You brought my friends at the right time, but it was God's victory. Your life needs to be about God's glory and God's victory. That's the great perspective to have that will keep you humble and keep you from not being conceited or prideful. And we wish we wish uh, Gideon's story could have ended with verse three, but we got across the Jordan River, don't we? Two battles and two Gideons. So here's the second battle. Eight, four to 21, but we'll, we'll read it in parts. East of the Jordan, we're starting with uh, Gideon the despot. A despot, a really evil ruler kind of guy, yeah. Gideon and there's 300 men, exhausted. Yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkot, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out. And I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Sukkot said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Oh. You know, I was listening to a documentary talking about Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan remembered every single person that ever crossed him, every single person that ever like talked trash to him, who, uh, and he used it as motivation. And I hate to say it, that's going to be Gideon here. So welcome, Aaron. Welcome those who are, who are, who are here now. Uh, why should we give bread to your troops? And we're in uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 7. Then Gideon replied just for that. <laughs> just for that. It's like he was ready for it. Well, just for that. When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Well, gosh, Gideon, that escalated quick. Jeez. Wow. Uh, so from there, he went up to Peniel uh, and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkot had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I'm going to tear down your tower." Well, Gideon, uh, he's the despot here. My goodness. Um, yeah, once he crosses the Jordan, we got a whole new Gideon come out of the, out of the river, don't we? Uh, the first Gideon was a timid guy, and uh, God uses that timid guy to, uh, to bring victory. And uh, Gideon now turns into a forceful guy who acts on his own whims. And he's threatening, and he's invoking God's name, and uh, yeah. And you know what? God's silent here. 
we don't like that God is silent. You know, we, 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 we want God to step in and go, wait a minute, knock it off. Enough already. God's not speaking here. Well, that's Gideon the despot. Bad Gideon. Oh, bad Gideon. Well, how about some victory? 10 to 12. Now Zeba and Zamuna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men. And for the record, Gideon has how many? Three, oh, oh. 300 dudes. At most 300 guys. Okay. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbetha. Beha. There you go. And attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zamuna, the two kings of Midian, fled. But he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. All right, we got a victory. There we go. The despot is threatening and the, uh, someone says something bad to them and he responds, well, we'll just for that. It's just like, I was going to let you go, but you had to talk your trash. Now you're going to get it. Uh, okay, so we, we pursue here to uh, Gideon, the despot, Gideon, the victorious. Gideon, the t torturer? Oh, no. Gideon. Yeah, Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Sukkot and questioned him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of 77 officials of Sukkot, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkot, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to you and your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkot a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Wow. Shame on you, Gideon. Is that how God's leader is supposed to work? Did God raise you up to do that? Was that the response that God, that honors God? So we got to wrestle with this. Because Gideon, like it or not, is God's guy. God called Gideon in a very miraculous way. Like he showed up. The angel of the Lord showed up. It's not going to happen in the whole rest of the book of Judges for God calling like that. Gideon is clearly God's guy, and yet God, or Gideon is, um, well, we've got God's victory and God's glory, and we've got this kind of other thing. Gideon's story, Gideon's glory. Gideon uses whatever power he has to take the law into his own hands. And why do some people do that? Do you do that? Do you ever take those moments? And do worse? See, it's not enough to read the story of Gideon. You've got to become Gideon at some point. Say, you know what? That's great, Joel, but am I ever like that? And I know in my own life, I've been this Gideon. And I've made these horrible choices. Think about your life. How are you like that first Gideon? You're a little bit reluctant, afraid, but you want God to get the glory. That's good. 
Now, how are you like this, Gideon? That's, you just got to ask those questions. Otherwise, we're not being fair to the text. Well, maybe you're coming through with flying colors. Well, okay, fine. Sit down with a piece of paper and say, God, how am I like that, Gideon? Work me over, God. Show me where, I, where I'm needing to, to, to confess and to repent and to change my ways and change my perspective and my attitude. Well, Gideon just gets worse. He's now the executioner, 18 to 21. Then he said, then he asked Zebah and Zalmunah, and these are the enemies of God's people. Okay, this is, these are people that God's people did not cast out and drive out of the promised land. So it's not like, okay, he's being bad. I mean, no, it's just, it's just leading a certain way. He asked them, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Oh, that was a nice line. Kind of a kingly line. That's foreshadowing. The text never says Gideon becomes king. But just pay attention to this as we conclude to move forward with King Gideon in just a moment. Gideon doesn't fight too hard. Gideon's going to do things where you're like, man, oh, man. You say you're not going to be a king, but my goodness, look at you. These guys are sucking up just a little bit. The bearing of a prince, just like you. Wow. Gideon replied, those are my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to, oh, we get a new character, Jether. Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether, it's kind of ironic here. He's going to be like Gideon. You know, remember chapter one, Gideon, that first guy, that little hiding guy, the, the timid guy? Gideon's oldest son is just like dad here, reluctant. He didn't draw his sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. Zebed and Zamuna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them. He took off their ornaments off the camel's necks. So Gideon the despot, Gideon the victorious, Gideon the torturer, Gideon the executioner. We've got a tale of two Gideons here. And yeah, this, the first Gideon is uh, very trusting, or at least, as much as he could be, I guess. He, he, I think he struggled with his trust, but eventually he does trust. Eventually his, his, his arguments with God are settled and he trusts God. Little as it is, he does. He's, he's trusting and God delivers the victory. And Gideon definitely thinks he needs God. This new Gideon, he's revenge driven. And Gideon wins without God even showing up, as it were. And Gideon acts like he doesn't need God. If that's your life, Oh, I don't need God. Where's God at? Come on. I mean, I'm going through all this. And if God wanted, he could have stopped it or he could have changed it. But here I am. So how powerful could this God be? Because here I am. Or maybe God's expecting me to step up and to, uh, to be him for a while. Maybe God's raised me up so I can start making my own decisions and I can just try to outguess God. I don't know. I don't know what possessed Gideon to do these things to act this way, but um, he does. We have two Gideons, clearly two Gideons, and a spirit of revenge. You know, trusting God means that we don't just trust him for deliverance, and we do. 
We trust God to deliver us. We trust God to save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We trust him for that. But when you really trust God, you just don't trust him for the big things like that. We also trust him in dealing with people who have wronged us. It's like Jesus says, bless those who persecute you. Pray and love your enemies. Not turn into a a, a revenge-driven despot and kill. Because they ticked you off and you gave your word you were going to do it. It's not fair to read Jesus into Gideon. But we we follow Jesus. We don't follow Gideon. We can't be that way. We have to live by like Romans 12. And as, as those who have wronged us, we forgive them. And in doing so, heaping burning coals on their head. So we live by grace and we live as peacemakers and we live as those who are mourning our, our own brokenness. And a spirit of revenge. Um, yeah. You see, the book of Judges is all about people who are going to do whatever seems right in their own eyes. May that not be you. In our own eyes, no, we're not the standard God and his word are. Yeah, well, a tale of two Gideons, which one, which one, which one is most like you and a spirit of revenge? That can't be you either. People who have wronged you, they're going to, even in a passive sense, it's like you're, maybe some of you are, are follow politics you just grumble at each new thing and what consoles you is like well eventually they're going to get theirs that might be theologically correct in the sense of like the day of the lord but where evil is going to be fully and finally defeated one day okay fine but is that a waste of your religious time is that a waste of your emotions is that a really a poor spending? It's like you could go to the gas station and you could probably fill out your entire grocery list if you had to. But would you? That would be ridiculous. You would spend far too much money buying things you probably aren't even going to eat. But you could do it, I guess. But is that really what you're supposed to be spending your time doing? Is that really the best expenditure of yourself? to worry about what they're going to get theirs and everything. And God's going to make it about God and not about revenge. Because revenge will just come right in there. Revenge is just waiting. It's like God, God told that the very first biblical counseling in the Bible was God talking to Cain. And he's like, hey, can it, kid? Anger's right there outside your heart. And it's knocking. It's right. It wants to come in and master you, but you have to master it. It's like that revenge, that bitterness, that resentment, that anger and fear and resentment and anxiety, all those things are right there. And it's wanting just to come in and start working you over. And if you let it in, start doing its job, spending time with like, oh man, I'm going to say, it's like literally pray for your enemies. It's like, that's, Jesus meant that. Like, dang, I mean, this is, these are not things that you just, that are just theoretical. Um, a spirit watch out for that spirit of revenge pay attention to you pay attention to yourself and how you think about the news and how you think about your facebook feed 
and how you think about your Twitter feed, whatever it is. Pay attention to how you respond inside of your heart. Are you about vengeance? Are you about God's glory? Because if vengeance truly is God's, then let it be his. And this personal stuff that you're wanting to express, knock it off. That can't and shouldn't be you. We have a different standard. We got to be very careful. Because honestly, you could throw Gideon to Jesus' uh, parable about the unmerciful servant. Remember that guy who got forgiven this massive debt and the second he wouldn't forget the next guy in line? He just was unmerciful. What has God forgiven you of? For you to turn right around and go, yeah, well, I'm going to make sure that they get theirs. Who do you think you are? I mean, you didn't get yours because God is gracious and merciful. Be careful of that spirit of revenge. Even if you think, oh, I'm good at that. I'm good. Don't, don't worry about it, Joel. Fine. Pay attention. Because you are probably more like bad Gideon than you think you are. Just be careful. I have to be careful too. My goodness. All the time in my marriage and my parenting, all the time. I got to be careful about that. I have to submit those things to the cross. Well, King Gideon, let's scroll down here so we can see. King, I mean, seriously, king, well, a royal proposition, chapter 8, verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. That, by the way, any of you who pay attention to England and the royal family, it's a royal family for a reason, and people who care about these things look at succession Okay, if this guy steps down, then this guy steps in. and this guy dies, this one can step in. And this brother and this son can, and what, what have you. They care about that. They're talking to Gideon in terms of a royal family, a dynasty, as it were. You, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian, rule over us. Now, Gideon has a good response here. I got to give it, I, I, I have to give it to Gideon here. This is a good response. We see this in 1 Samuel 8 as well. The people are coming up to Samuel. Who, By the way, Samuel, spoiler alert, is going to be the last judge. How do I know that? He's not in the book of Judges, but he then anoints the first king, Saul. But right before that, at 1 Samuel 8, the people are crying. Like, we want a king. We want a king. And Samuel says, you already have a king. Actually, he, go, he, goes, he goes to God and starts complaining. They're rejecting me, God. They're rejecting me. And God's, you know, hosing them down a bit and saying, hold on, pal. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They already have a God. or already have a king. It's me, God. But they're not satisfied with it. They want more. So Gideon has a good answer here. I got to give Gideon that. I mean, I've been hard on Gideon. But he says, I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. I wish that could have been my pen. Mic drop. I wish that could have been a mic drop. I wish Gideon's story ends there. I say, you know what? It all comes back to God. And Gideon gave the good answer there. Um, but as you can see, chapter 8 continues. Okay. Full circle. 24 to 27. And he said, I do have one request. He's like, I'm not going to be your king. He's like, but as long as you're here and you're handing things out, I want this. Hold on. If I still have your ears, 
I get it. I'm the great savior of all the people. I'm not going to be your king. But I'm just saying, I do have one request. All right, fine. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. Seriously? I've heard of a pirate's booty, but what's this? An earring? It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. So evidently, when they defeated these guys, there was a bunch of gold sitting around. Ah, yes. Gideon wants a taste. Gideon wants some. It's like Gideon came in like Moses, and he's going out like Aaron, isn't he? Ah, yes. Moses is on top of the mountain. He's been gone for a long time. The people don't know who to worship. They go to Aaron and go, you're the priest guy, right? Could you make us a worship thing? And Aaron says what? Well, give me some gold. Give me some gold. And then Aaron makes something out of it. Well, what's going to happen here? Oh, my goodness. They answered, oh, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. Wow. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments. Oh, there's purple. How about that? Purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod. What? Which he placed in Ophrah, his town. What? All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Oh, heck no. Uh-oh. This is just like the golden calf. Aaron made the golden calf, and all and we, uh, the Cecil be the mill, kind of like people dancing around and that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's like a, oh, no, 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 Gideon. No, 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 no. Remember, Gideon, your first job, Gideon, your name means hacker, buster. It's like God used you to hack and bust down that Baal idol at that rock in Orphra. Your first job in like honoring God was to do that. They literally called you Jerubbabah Baal, which means let Baal contend with this guy who's taking it to him. And now... The very first thing you do in your own backyard is erecting it. Oh, Joel, you're being so hard. It's an ephod. What the heck was an ephod? The ephod is what the high priest wore. That was a priestly garment. It had, on the breastplate was attached to it. And under the breastplate, on the ephod, were a stone for every tribe of Israel. That was a very sacred thing that was made out of like linen that was made back in the Exodus time. And um, yeah, so he is turning into a worship thing. Yes, Randy has a good text here. Uh, he was, Randy texted in, he was trying to set up a way to determine God's will, like a copy of the Urim and Tumim. If you remember back in uh, when, when they, when, where they crafted the tabernacle and they crafted the priestly garments, the Urim and the Tumim, the, the, the special stones that the high priests were to use were also stored in the ephod. And we could at face value say, you know what, Gideon, maybe he made this golden thing um, 
as a means of testing God's will, as a means of finding out God's will, although it is ironic that Gideon would want to test God's will at some point. Um, so it's like, yeah, God, God literally said, do this. And Gideon says, okay, but remember that fleece? And I want the ground to be dry, but the fleece be wet. And then God did it. And then Gideon's like, I want you to alter the laws of physics and do the exact opposite. And, uh, and try it with a bounty paper towel sometime. My dog likes to pee on our floors. So I'm constantly trying to find paper towels and, and cover little things. She's really old and she's kind of senile. And we're, we love her, but we got to clean up her pee. Kind of like, I, I'm always trying to mop up things around my house. And yeah, and spray bottle never too far away kind of thing. And then you're testing God's will. And, you know, Randy texts back, of course, the Israelites began to worship the ephod. Exactly. Because it's the text literally says here, they all prostituted themselves there. And you cannot use the verb prostitute. I mean, you can't really use the noun, but to, to prostitute yourself means that you are meant to be faithful to this person, but instead you are with this person. And that does not work in a marriage. Otherwise that's adultery. But in a marriage with God is that he's expecting faithfulness and you're going over here. You're prostituting yourself and that covenant unfaithfulness. And God is a jealous God and God is going to deal with this again and yeah, and the text says they prostitute themselves by worshiping it there. So Gideon says, I'm not going to be your king, but make me this great golden thing. And I'm not just going to put it in my closet and, you know, maybe take a chunk off every once in a while to pay a bill. No, no, no. I want to put it in my backyard. And remember my backyard used to be like a, a local thing where people were worshiping Baal, like a local kind of family God. Now all Israel is going to come by me and is going to come worship this, this thing I've got. That kind of reminds people of God and the holy, holy ephod thing. But in reality, it's a means for prostitution towards another deity of sorts. And it became a snare. The text is not letting Gideon off the hook at all. So I cannot read enough into this. Those of you, you're being hard. The text, doesn't, the text does say, it literally says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there in Gideon's backyard. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Oh, no. It's full circle with this God business, isn't it? What's worse than Baal? Someone who's supposed to be God's guy, causing God's people to worship God light. That's worse than Baal. Where God's people should be worshiping God. But instead, God's guy says, you know what? I get it. But worship this. Man, dang. Well, a royal retirement? 28 to 32. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. Now, as I read this next part, what image is going to come to mind? Is it a very successful common person? Or is it someone who's not a common person? What's this? Here we go. He had 70 sons of his own. I didn't say 17. I said 70. Seven zero. Oh, my goodness. For he had many wives. Well, obviously, his concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. All right, I'm just going to say it. I'm not expecting you to know your Hebrew, 
but I know just enough. Gideon says, I'm not a king. So he names his son, my father, the king. Avi, my father, Melech, king. His son is called, my father is king, but I'm not a king. But I'm not going to name my son, my father is king. Wow. If my son was named that, you'd be going, geez, you're kind of fond of yourself there, aren't you, Bradshaw? Yeah, no kidding. I'm not going to be your king. My son's name is going to say otherwise. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and your 70 sons. And the one that gets named is named my father is king. Oh, yeah, Gideon. Yeah, you, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Wow. Okay, well. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, and Ophrah, the Abiezrites. Okay. Should we do some math here? Uh, how did he... Okay. So Gideon seems to have gone back home to retire to the private sector, but uh, he has many wives. He's got a harem, okay? We call having many wives a harem, okay? Because he's tending these wives, as it were, because he's producing many children. Um, Seventy sons. Uh, Canaanite kings were known for having many wives. Deuteronomy 17 prohibits it for Israel's kings. Um, to support such a family, to have 70 sons, uh, Gideon had to have some kind of a bank account. Well, he had a big golden ephod. I mean, but he had, he had to have some kind of kingly resources. Um, Jacob had two wives, and Jacob had two concubines, and they had 12 sons. David had eight wives and two concubines, and they had 19 sons. How many wives would Gideon have to have to produce 70 sons? Should we be conservative on this? 15? Well, those are awful ripe wombs. What about double that? Would he need 30 wives to produce 70 sons? I've heard of my big fat Greek wedding, but Gideon, my goodness, 30 wives? Family is huge. He's got to have some kind of major bank to be able to, to, be able to produce this. Yeah, Randy, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to read your text, but yeah, Gideon is, is probably at a ripe old age is supporting all these wives, and he's able to um, produce children. It's pretty oppressive, I guess. Uh, but yeah, this is, uh, there was no medical supplements back then, as it were. Uh, yeah, so um, no other person in Israel would have had done this who, if you did this, you're basically saying, I'm a king. Because only a king gets away with this. Only a king has the kind of money to get away with this. But only a king would have a harem or would have some kind of a homestead to have all these people in a, in a time period where Israel had no king. Gideon was living like a king of the Canaanites. It's pretty obvious. He's living the kingly lifestyle. But I'm not going to be a king. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well... There's some audacity there. The deaths and the burials of all the rest of the judges are going to be recorded. It all starts with Gideon. And it's possible the rest of the book of Judges is going to 
be like a royal successor. Our next chapter is going to talk about that. Who's going to be Gideon's successor? Who's going to be like Gideon? Oh, hypocrisy. What's the great Hippocratic, hypocritical moment for, for Gideon? I'm not going to be a king. God's going to be king. Those are my words. Now, here are my deeds. I'm going to live how I'm going to live. Do as I say, not as I do. That's the ultimate political hypocrisy or anyone else's hypocrisy. Do as I say, not as I do. If that is you, knock it off. That cannot be you. Your deeds must match your words. That is my greatest struggle in life as a man and as a person. I have to have my deeds match my words. My doctrine, my theology cannot be right, and my practice not follow. Because if, my, if, I, don't, if I don't live godliness, then who cares what I believe? If the fruit is not on the tree, what's that say about the tree? I mean, come on. You, you cannot study this text of me and not think about your own hypocrisy. Dig into your soul tonight. Okay, well, where is it in my life? What needs to stop in my life? What needs to start? But Gideon, it's clear. Gideon's example is so horrible it can't help but teach us. What about the Spider-Man principle? Who wants to text it? Who knows the Spider-Man principle? It was in the Spider-Man movie. With great power comes great responsibility. Those of us who are called to be influencers and leaders, we have a responsibility. You may say to yourself, well, I'm not a big leader. Who are you influencing? Who looks to you and is influenced? Well, I don't think I'm much of an influencer. Okay, who do you encourage? Do you encourage people? Do you reach out to people? When you pray, are people touched by that? Who in your life are you influencing? Are you influencing them for God's glory for, or for yours? With great power comes great responsibility. I close with I have another 5K. I want to close with a 5K story again. I've run two 5Ks in, in, in the city where I signed up. I've done, I've done their 5Ks, like virtual 5Ks on a treadmill. But I did, uh, I did two 5Ks different years. I told you about the first one already. The second one, I was thinking to myself, you know, and I had it all planned out. I trained, I, I, it worked out really well, by the way, when I told that first story, it worked out really well when my friend got into a baby carriage and I was pushing a stroller and she, and she was worried that oh, I'm going to be so heavy, you're not going to be able to push me. No, I, I like you heavy. It's really good. That weight, it helps my back. I'm like, yes, good balance there for me. So, and I, I didn't tell her that I like her heavy or anything like that. I just said, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. Trust me. You're good. This, is, this works for me. And eventually she had to get out and I, I needed to do other things. And we, we, ended, we ended, as I told you, with arms linking kind of thing. And they supported me and we crossed. This 5K, I was a little bit smarter. My kids had kind of grown out of the baby stroller. And we got a different one. So I got this really, really big heavy duty stroller that we had in the garage. And I loaded it full of weight big, heavy, like tool chest, you know, 
bar, you know, dumbbells, you know, they just stack them on there. Okay. I loaded as heavy as I could. Okay. And yeah, it was a pain to push. I'm, don't get me wrong. It was at least, you know, 70 to hundred pounds of stuff to push there. And I was fine pushing. I played football in college for a year and I pushed the sled and there's nothing worse to push than the sled. I can push the sled in the, in the two a days and the hell week of the August heat. This was nothing. And people were like watching me walk and like, oh, you walk with your, your baby. Like, no, 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 this is about, there's a B word here. It's about balance, not baby. So I had tried to make a sign saying, this is balance, not for baby. Because there was no baby there. It was a bunch of weights and I'm pushing it and I'm pushing it. And that helped me to really go nicely. And I was able to balance my, my back and my, and my, my legs. It was, I, I, I could go faster because I could lean. And it wasn't really a, a, an advantage, number one, because I wasn't going to be setting any pace records anyway. But number two, I'm pushing about 100 pounds of stuff. What was the problem? I get about a mile away from finishing. And I get the wheel of the, because the thing was like a tank. You couldn't hardly turn it. Okay, so I got the wheel in a rut, and I tried to back up. That was the problem. I backed up. My balance was shot, and I went right on my rear end. The problem was... I did that right in front of a race official who was right there, a volunteer. And they were like, oh no. And they thought I was down for the count. I was just like, oh gosh, I was tired. I'm like, just give me a moment, you know? And they got on the little walkie talkie. Can we have a, you know, and they, they sent an ambulance to come out by me, okay? And I was last, so I was like in the last place. It was like, it wasn't like, it was like ruining anyone else's race, but they got an ambulance. And they came out here and they, and they said, okay, sir, you're gonna sit up on the ambulance, we're gonna, you know, put something on your forehead and we're going to, we got to take you to the hospital and we have to do that. It's just the rules. And I said, no, I've got people counting on me. I'm going to finish that. I'm so close. Let me just finish. I got it. Well, sir, you're doing this against medical advice. We can't be held responsible. I'm like, fine, whatever I got to sign, just let me finish the stinking race. I want to finish it. I want to see if I can get a better time than last time. And I want to be able to do it on my own accord. The cool thing is they let me go. And there were, a family of racers, a mom and a dad and an adult son right there as well. And they're like, oh my gosh, look at this guy. And they took a liking to me. And they decided, well, you know, we were probably going to get a better score, but let's just, let's just pause and let's just kind of walk slowly with this guy as he finishes his race. And they finished with me. It was a really cool moment. But the coolness doesn't stop there. Because as I finished the race, the last mile of the race, what was behind me? that stinking ambulance followed me the whole rest of the race because they're thinking well we'll be darned you're not going to fall again and if you do fall again we'll be right here we don't want to go back to the station and have to have them call us back out for your stubborn butt we're going to fall and so they followed me the whole rest of the race there's a picture out there it's like the, uh, the, the the local fire chief took a picture of it i had to get after him can i have a picture of that of me pushing a stroller surrounded by this mom and dad and this this guy and we were all kind of smiling trying to finish the race at our little, little, little slow pace and having behind us this looming looming ambulance and i finished the race a great time was had by all and i probably got more chinese food afterwards just a reminder i'm not running this race for my glory and certainly not with my ability. God is behind me every step of the way. God is directing my path. And at no point am I stealing glory from God. There was absolutely no glory that day on me. On the, and the guys who walked with me, they probably got some glory. 
the fire department got some glory. Me, I'm lucky I made it. And, you know, we all had a good laugh. It just reminds me, this life is not on my terms. How I live this life, even the great things I, I tend to try to accomplish, it's all about God. There's a grander narrative than Joel. And there's a grander narrative in your story than you. Your life is either all about God or it's not. And if you say it's all about God, if you claim to be a great follower of Jesus, do you live otherwise? You see, because I couldn't take the glory of that 5K too much. At some point, it was like, yeah, but you got to It's like, it's great that you finished, but you had a freaking ambulance following you. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a fall risk or whatever. There's no glory that was coming my way at some point. It just became a fun story. What's your story? What Gideon are you most like? And that just needs to be the end of it. What Gideon is you? Which is it? Are you all about trusting God and giving him glory? Or are you not? Are you all about yourself and your own revenges and your own emotions and following your heart? And one of those Gideons is you. You got to figure out what that is. Thanks for joining us tonight. We will continue our study in Judges next week.